Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human centred design practitioner based in Sydney, Australia. As this episode was recorded in Cochlear's head office on the grounds of Macquarie University within the Sydney metro area, I'd like to acknowledge the Watamatical Glan of the Darug Nation as the traditional custodians of the land where we met today and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. In this episode, I caught up with Victor Rodriguez, the Chief Software Architect and User Experience Advocate for Cochlear, one of Australia's most loved and most successful innovation success stories. For anyone who is unaware, Cochlear produce implantable hearing solutions for the profoundly deaf. And for anyone with their technological finger on the pulse, may have seen late last year on all the tech websites a partnership between Apple and Cochlear. This basically allows people with the device to stream audio from their Apple device directly to the Cochlear device. We discussed how this idea came about internally in Cochlear, and how does a good idea enter the business conversation internally, and what Victor did over a decade ago to get the design buy-in at the board level, and what impact this had to the business overall. So let's jump straight in. Victor Rodriguez, a very warm welcome to the This Is Hate CD podcast. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Victor, let's kick off. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Cochlear. I have been at Cochlear for 17 and a half years now. Right. Uh, so I've been here. In fact, I've been here as long as I sort of, you know, I can't remember jobs before this. <laughs> they sort of this vague memory. Of, Was the internet uh, in around the when you joined? It was. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> Tim Berners-Lee was. was still harboring But, uh, you know, the sad thing is that I, when I left university back in the early 90s, uh, yeah. the internet was still not around and my first job was still, email was still like the thing. Yeah. But anyway, we digress. So I've been at Cochlear for 17 and a half years and I am Cochlear's chief software architect. Right. And as you know, Cochlear is an Australian success story. We've been around for well over 25 years now, in fact. And we essentially provide implantable hearing solutions for the profoundly and severely deaf. And in fact, it goes beyond that now in the sense that we're able to give people the hearing even when they are single-sided deaf or they might still have some residual hearing. So the indications for hearing and qualifying for a cochlear implant has actually expanded quite considerably over the years. I mean, we implant as young as six months old as well. And generally, it's really for people that have lost the function of the cochlear. And we do offer other implantable solutions neurocentral hearing loss, the cochlear implant that caters for neurocentral hearing loss. And then we've also got um, our Baja solution, which caters for conductive uh, hearing loss. That's when your ossicular chain, which is your your incus, your malleus and your stapes, they don't work. Mm-hmm. And effectively, uh, the bone hanger solution, anchored solution, caters for that. And like I said, we've been around for quite some time now. In fact, it's probably over 30 years that cochlear has been around. The multi-channel cochlear implant was invented by Professor Graham Clark from the University of Melbourne, and he's still very active in the industry, in fact. We've got a fairly good relationship with that institution and the individual as well, and it's essentially an Australian success story. Yeah, no, absolutely. A little bit of a disclaimer here. 
I have worked for Cochlear in the past yeah. and um, I was brought in to design the My Cochlear uh, experience for the business. And that's how I know Victor. So for anyone listening, you know, we actually are friends and we've worked together quite a lot over the years. And I thought that this was a, a really good opportunity before, especially I leave Australia, to get face to face and talk a little bit about, you know, this success story and how design sits into the organization and everything that goes with that. So let's start a little bit more. Um, I remember before I came to Cochlear, hearing from a number one of my peers that Cochlear was like was quite engineering led back at that time, and maybe it still is. I'm not sure. That's what we're going to discuss. But your your presence in the UX scene was was being felt in that time. So tell us a little bit about how you became involved with UX and where that appetite came from. It is. I mean, the story goes back probably more than ten years ago. You know, back in the day when I joined Cochlear. As a software developer, mind you, we didn't have UX people. In, and in fact, the UX trade was probably fairly low-key back then across the entire industry. This, I mean, this, this is... 2008. This is, well, actually, two, early 2000s, because I joined mm. Cochlear at the end of 2000. Okay. And the software that we were developing back then, which is primarily catered for clinicians, audiologists using our software in order to set up their customers or their patients to have their implant system configured so that uh, they could hear. And that piece of software was actually designed by a bunch of engineers. So, you know, good old-fashioned software engineers designing the software. And, you know, there's a sense of pride that goes in with that because at the time you do go into the nitty-gritty and the finer details of those interactions. But it wasn't something that was schooled. It wasn't something that people went and got, uh, you know, went to university and studied user interaction design and just the entire user experience. We did the best that we could. Yeah. Although that was just the software part of it because at the end of the day, Cochlear is an implantable hearing solutions company. So we make implants that last an entire lifetime. And we also make uh, sound processors which sit on the ins- outside of the ear, well, the outside of the head, on the yeah. ear, yeah. and they effectively translate sound into electrical signals. And that processor has also had quite a journey. It started off as a body-worn processor. In fact... When we initially started, it just used to this big machine at the back, almost like a mainframe sitting behind you, right? (laughs) Uh, When we had like a handful of our recipients who were experimenting with this when it was still in the research realm. And then slowly but slowly, once it got commercialized, you started to look, how do you scale this? How do you actually make such, you know, a bit of technology that translates sound into electrical signals? How do you commercialize that? And this is when you you came into the business at that stage? Well, I, I came into the business probably when Cochlear was about, I would say, 10 to 15 years old. Mm. So at the time, we were already designing behind-the-ear processes, yeah. uh, processes that sit on the ear. But we did have what we called body-worn processes, basically clipped onto your belt, mm. and then you had a wire that ran up to a little headpiece that actually contained the microphones. That's incredible. Yeah. So at that time, what was it about the software that you were creating that made you think, we must be able to do this better. Or how did you have that conversation with other people about getting UX into the business? I can't remember the exact moment when the penny dropped, but it was certainly just 
that interaction with your users. So you sat in these sessions with audiologists driving the software and you realized that a lot of the assumptions that you've been making all along while you're sitting there in the room designing the software mm. in the confines of uh, you know your office space and talking to as many people as you can, nothing replaces actually watching your users use it. Mm. And not only the users that we were actually writing the software for who are the professionals and their interaction with the patients that were actually um, yeah. getting the benefit of that software. And that's when the penny dropped. You started to realize, hang on, these interactions, there's a science to this. Mm. There has to be a science to this. And at some point in probably the mid-2000s, I thought, hang on, let me look at what the industry does and what the industry is doing in this space. And also remember, you're also a user in many other aspects. And you look at the evolution of online uh, shopping, for example, right? Mm. And you, you experience those interactions as a customer yourself. And you start critiquing some of those interactions. Yeah. And you think, oh, that applies to what I do at work as well. And I think I attended the first UX Australia conference. Uh, you would the, have. The very first one, which I think was in Canberra. I can't remember the year right now. Yeah. And that's when I started to explore what, you know, the science of UX was all about. And um, that's my first experience to it. And that's where I brought it into the organization from a software point of view. Because I, I do need to mention that we've been designing hardware with um, user experience sort of methodologies for quite some time now. It's yeah. in software that came in a little later. A little bit later. So can you remember the, the conversations that you had at that time? Because I definitely know there's people listening to the podcast that are sitting within a kind of very strongly engineering focused businesses and they really want to get UX adopted into, into the methodologies and how they create things. So can you remember the conversation that you had and what maybe you did to get the buy-in? You know, it's been a while now, so if I reflect on the types of conversations that I was having back then was largely just, you know, spurred by this desire to make our software better, to be far more, to be a delight to use. Because it, yeah. was, it wasn't only about just meeting user requirements or end user requirements and exploring those requirements. It was about delighting your user. And that's essentially what drove a lot of the conversation. Mm. But then what you essentially came to the conclusion is that there's a lot of interactions that you learn from that require you to actually sit and document user experience sessions where you essentially get your users to use your software and you expose as many people as possible to that process and you look at you know the critique that you that yeah. you're given you look at the things that they say that is good and bad about your software yeah and that's what essentially spurred it on and then once you start implementing that and feeding it into the software and you look at you're reaping the benefits of of that work mm. uh, the penny starts to drop yeah. or across the place Absolutely. and i remember when i was working here i it was it definitely was the first job that I actually felt emotion working with people who um, use the products. So just to zoom back a little bit more, like there's two different personas we're talking about here. One is the the audiologists. Yes. And they're like the partners to the business that they buy the product effectively or are partners with us. And they embed or they surgically implement the device into the recipient. And recipient is the term that Cochlear use for people who've, you know, purchased and received the device internally. Now, I remember at that time, I was, I was just touching on it there, I was doing user feedback sessions in St. Louis, I think it was, in the States. And it was definitely the first time that I felt an overwhelming 
sense of good that was in the organisation where I met a five-year-old little boy called Patrick Hoffner and I'm still friends with his mother on Facebook. And, oh, that's, wow. and that's the type of relationships I formed out of Cochlear and I've still kind of yearning for that in, in my own career. But um, it was the first time I realised that Cochlear wasn't just a product. It was actually, it was a service. And it was the service as a sense because it replaces an important you know sense within the body and it's it was a different type of service design. It was something that was actually replicating human behavior, and it was so deep. So, in your experience, how do you think it differs to normal product design? Because it's actually replacing that human sense of hearing. The one thing I guess about our product or our products and services is that you're almost, I mean, you essentially our end users, the recipients of our products, are grateful that we're restoring hearing yeah they're almost get lulled into this you guys are fantastic just on the basis that you are restoring the hearing right Mm. and there's a certain complacency associated with that where you may get yourself into this sort of tendency to go you know we're doing that so the other things can sort of fall by the wayside but i think that cochlear is really really good at ensuring that that doesn't happen And, I mean, I've been in numerous sessions where it could be young or old. You know, if it's a young child and they hear for the first time and that reaction that they get when they finally hear something for the first time they hadn't heard for probably nine months or a year old, doesn't really matter. And you look at the parent's reaction and there's an overwhelming sense of emotion in that room with tears, you know, even you know, to the point of tears. Yeah. Or a person that's elderly, maybe in their 70s or the 80s that haven't, hasn't heard for 20 or 30 years or whatever the case may be, and they hear a sound for the first time. They might, it might be birds chirping outside the audiologist room and that sense of emotion, it is overpowering. It's unbelievably overpowering when you sense that. And that gives you, it's certainly emotionally stirring to the sense that you know it just you look at it and you think my goodness I, I just I, I love the industry that I'm in right yeah but it also compels you to ensure that and this is reflecting back to the complacency bit right you've got to make sure that every interaction our users are getting older yeah they're getting older to the sense that they're becoming teenagers so they're interacting socially they're using social media so they have the same demands they have the same needs as what you know their peers are who aren't recipients of our device mm. they're using the same social tools they're they're interacting and doing the same sort of things that their peers are at school because essentially they're well integrated into society as a whole and that's when you start dissecting it. Those experiences with using our product needs to be very similar to what they're already experiencing, if not better. And that's the sense that drives us to ensuring that that user interaction and that user experience, the science of it and everything associated with it is something that we place a tremendous amount of um, value on. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I remember um, recently when we caught up Cochlear were working on being able to broadcast sound from iPhones directly to the in-ear device. Now, what I'm really keen to understand is where did that idea come from and how is it identified in the business? So I guess I'm kind of asking you uh, (laughs) sideways, how does a good idea enter the conversation in Cochlear? 
That's a good question. And I think there are a number of ways that one can answer that question. Uh, initially, I would say that cochlear is drawn by a strong sense of innovation. There's lots of ideas that brew inside and we're kind of mm. always socializing them internally. So what does innovation mean in cochlear? It really is about making sure that that end user experience is the best that you can construct. And if you think about Cochlear as a company who produces both hardware as well as software, they're on par in terms of the amount of effort that you put into those products to make sure that our end users get the best experience possible out of those. So for example, for hardware products, we look at uh, sound processors, the ones that sit on the ear. And in fact, one of the, today we have a product called the Kanza, which essentially is off the ear. It's, it doesn't sit on the ear. It sits on the head and it's essentially it looks like a button that uh, has exactly the same technology as the one that's behind the ear. Mm. And a lot of our end users prefer it. And it stems from just understanding our end users' needs in terms of the environment, how they use the products, how they use it at night, where they put it at night, for example, how they wake up in the morning. You know, all those interactions you try and understand and you have those conversations internally. Yeah, You socialize them internally and talk about it a lot. You, you share it on systems that uh, we create internally just to kind of put ideas out there. And they might be various ideas, or, you know, that, that stem out of it. Good, bad, doesn't matter. The thing is you're actually having those conversations. So I think that's probably what innovation means to us. Innovation means constantly challenge the norm mm. and challenging ourselves as to we haven't reached Nirvana yet if we're ever going to get there. And going back to your original question about um, streaming uh, sound directly to the processor, yeah. that was actually sparked by some of us who had this incredible love for fantastically designed products. And, and Apple was certainly one of those companies that had design and how their products are built and it's just front and foremost. That finesse. Absolutely, right? That yeah. finesse. And that was inspirational to the sense that how do I bring that mindset into the organization? Mm -hmm. And I remember more than eight years ago, I started having conversations with Apple going, how do we get in here? How do yeah. we actually make this work? Because your products are phenomenal. Your products are used throughout, you know, just people love your products. Yeah, they love interacting with And how do we get that goodness and the goodness that we create and kind of do something that's awesome? And over the years, it transpired that, you know, Apple has and still has and back then had this very keen sense of um, in terms of their altruistic sort of nature and in the accessibility space. They're very, very strong in the accessibility space. And they'd created a program where they'd um, wanted to to sort of enhance the, the lives of hearing impaired people. And that's where it sort of stemmed from. And that those conversations transpired not only with us, we also have a hearing partner called GN Resound. They make hearing aids. Yeah. And those conversations between the three of us, we sort of collectively with Apple's experience into this domain and with our experience of the industry and GN's experience of the hearing aid industry, we created what today we call the Nuclear 7 system, which has the capability of streaming audio any type of audio from your iOS device directly into your sound processor. And it's been a phenomenal success yeah. as well. And it's really boiling down to understanding your users and trying to put yourself into their shoes at every opportunity you get and just taking pride in, in that thing where you're creating something and then ensuring that you're covering 
through the design experience and you're having interaction sessions with them, you're doing user experience design sessions, you're, you know, the feedback sessions, you know, all those sort of things, sort of making sure that you're doing the right things and ultimately create a product which, you know, you're pretty proud of and hopefully has uh, met that specific need and you can tick that box and say, that thing that we envisaged four years ago has now materialized. But once again, you know, still thinking of all the things that you can do in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. So what role would you say design has in the future for Cochlear? Oh, it's super important. We're constantly, I mean, design is actually entrenched pretty much into the organization across the board, both in hardware design, where I think it has been strong. And I kind of relate, if you look at our hardware products and our processes and implants over the years, you look back on the products that we developed like, you know, 15 years ago and they look, oh God, did we actually design that? But it was just, that's just part of the course, right? Absolutely. It's, it's how you evolve and how design, how, you know, new materials come of age and you start applying a lot of the technology that um, benefits the design, so to speak. And I think... One drives the other. There's no one dominant factor over the other. I mean, think back in the 60s and the 70s and you look at the cars that existed back then, you look at those cars today. Yeah, there's a certain pride that you feel or a certain attachment that you feel to old cars. But you look at those designs and you say, oh my God, really? Did we design this? But every now and then one comes out and you kind of go, that still looks incredible. So failure is a byproduct of innovation. It's absolutely the two are entrenched. Spot on, spot on. So in hardware, I think we've always been pretty strong and look, it's been a journey, right? It's, yeah. it's always a journey. You learn from the mistakes that you make. And I think that that's probably one of our strengths is you look at the things that you've sometimes didn't get quite right and you're critical about them and you have those conversations internally. And today we've got user experience design people entrenched in the organization across the board, whether it's building software products for audiologists or building software products for our end users, our recipients, even building internal products, in fact, you know, because there are, there are certain software uh, products that we build that's just for internal use. You still apply the same principles that you would apply to external users as well. Yeah. And it's an evolution. You know, you sort of grow with it. You learn from your mistakes. And once again, it's it's making sure that you keep those conversations going. At the board level as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Even at the board level. Yeah. You're, I mean, if I reflect back 10 years ago, when we were looking at user experience design as a discipline as such, and it was always like, okay, but do we really need it? And then ultimately you start getting those wins and reflecting on the journey that it took to get that product up to there and how much of a role user experience actually plays in that. At a very high level, you're actually talking about these things even at the board level. Mm. It all of a sudden becomes fait accompli. You know, you always have to have that level of interaction design, you know, human-centered design into everything that we do. And I do think that we've got pretty broad coverage of that across the organization. All right, Victor, we're coming towards the end of this episode and we ask three questions to every guest that's on the show. Um, I've given you a little bit of a heads up just before we started recording, so um, (laughs) I'm still going to be getting a natural reaction. So, Victor, tell us, what's the one professional skill that you wish you were better at? You know, I'm an engineer by trade. Yeah. I've actually got an electrical engineering degree and um, I haven't done much of that, but I think that probably the one skill that I wish I had was better at is user interaction design. It's something that I've always loved. It is something that I've always felt passionate about, but I'm not schooled in it. Mm. And I think that one thing that I would always caution anyone is don't think you know something 
just because you feel passionate about it. There is a lot of assumptions that you'll make that are just wrong. Yeah. And I guess that's probably one of the things that I would want other than being a pilot. <laughs> yeah. Which you've successfully done in the last couple of years. Well, to a certain degree, to I guess. To a certain degree. I won't be letting you fly uh, my plane on the way home, but that's for sure. <laughs> Second question, Victor. So what's the one thing from the industry that you'd like to be able to banish? Parking meters. The industry, <laughs> not society. There's not anything specific that comes to mind. But I mean, if I reflect on, I don't know, just, just, just bring it back home to the user experience design. You know, there's lots of tools that one uses, mood boards, for example, and um, lots of tools that the industry uses internally in an organization. And sometimes getting people to actually understand what they're used for and what they are, I think has always been a challenge. And I've, there's always been, you know, a relative amount of success and sometimes failures in how those tools get used. And I know I'm being critical, a little critical of the industry itself. And I'm not saying that we should get rid of them, but I'd certainly think that how they're used is probably something that we need to change. Okay. All right. So the last question, Victor, is what advice would you give to design talent for the future? So people who are studying design at the moment and that want to get into design, what advice could you tell them? That's another interesting question. And there are times where I've actually thought about this. And I think the one thing that I would say to a young high school or even university student, whatever it is that you're going to do, always look at the things that you interact with in your life, whether it's shopping, whether it's going to a parking garage and paying the parking ticket, anything that you do, always look at that interaction and see how frustrated you are with it or how awesome that experience is and bring it home. Yeah. Understand what it is that you can do in order to make the thing that you do, the thing that you're qualified for, the thing that your company pays you money for, how would you improve that just based on your day-to-day -day interactions with everyday objects, people, whatever it is, just keep asking yourself, how can I improve the life or the quality of the work, whatever it is that you're doing based on the things that I'm learning on a day-to-day -day basis? Brilliant. Victor, thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thank you. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com, where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Music